Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Thursday, January the 11th, 2024. It is time for an expert council Q&A show today, which means that don't do a live stream, except today I'm doing one anyway, but not for the whole show. When, when we get to my segment, it will be on the audio you're listening to right now, uh, but it will also be available as a video on my channel and the Bitcoin Breakout YouTube channel, also my channel. And uh, we're going to be talking about Bitcoin there, and I'll tell you what about when we get to it. I'll tell you everything else we're going to talk about today, because it is a good lineup of experts today with a ton of variety. Dr. Paul and Chris Rossini in the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights will just say, you know what, it's time to stop clinging and just let go of the empire. I could not agree more. Tim Toolman Cook will talk about setting pricing and bidding jobs as a handyman or a contractor. This is actually really a, a difficult thing when you start out because... You don't know what you don't know. And I'll, I'll throw a little bit on this because in my sales career, I spent an awful lot of time in the structured cabling market. And that was, you know, it's sales, but it was all about bids and pricing. And so understanding the pricing in your market is really important there. So you can only sanity check the end of a bid. Next up, Doc Bones will talk about dealing with prostitutes at middle age, when prostate cancer is not a concern, and you've already tried a medication and had some unfortunate side effects from it. Patrick Rohrman will give an update uh, from uh, his just kind of his life and what he's going to be doing with MT Knives going forward and the homesteading and all of those things at the Rohrman compound, the new Rohrman compound. Sean Mills will talk to you about building your, building your own solar backup system. Doc Ken Berry will tell you what black seed oil is, why it's a seed oil, because it comes from a seed, and you probably really don't need to be using it, and when someone says they're keto, but their A1C after a year is above 7, how you know they're not doing actual keto. Matt Sersley is going to talk to you guys about a, a new report called the Boyer Report, B-O-I-R, uh, this is anybody out there, if you own an LLC, a corporation, or you have more than 25% interest in one, or you are of a position within one where you can do things like make key decisions, you need to file this form. This isn't for the entity, it's for the individual in the entity. So one entity with four equal owners at 25% each, all four of those owners under this would have to file this form. It's a very simple form. It doesn't cost anything, but if you don't do it, you can get literally raped in the butt. I mean hard, like bankrupted to infinity, even if your entity doesn't have any money in it, and thrown in prison if you do it long enough. Like $10,000 a day, and eventually you can have your ass thrown in a federal prison because you didn't fill out a piece of paperwork. Because your government is full of liars, scum, and thieves. Remember that always. And then I've got my segment, the Bitcoin ETF is approved. What's next, and will the FUD-spewing maxis ever shut up and go back to just talking about Bitcoin? Because there is some absolute total misinformation being spewed by people that I generally respect... But what's even worse is that most of it is really not so much direct bullshit, it's straw man fallacy. 
meaning that they're creating a problem that's not there so they can rail against something so they have something to talk about because I guess they're bored or it's a slow news day or what, I don't know. But they all will shut up, and when I'm done, you'll know why. And I've, I've felt like I really needed to talk about this for a while, and I figured I would just wait till the damn thing was approved, even though I did talk about it some of the last Bitcoin breakout. So it's like a mini Bitcoin breakout segment. We'll do all of that and more starting, well, almost right now. I do want to remind you guys, real quick, that I put a ton of work, I mean an absolute ton of work, into our first ever online course available at homefoodsystems.com. Homefoodsystems.com. The course is on simplified bioreactor composting. I never really thought I needed to do this course. But the demand for it's kind of like the SEC didn't really want to approve the Bitcoin ETF, but the market's like, yeah, you're going to do it. And eight years of pounding on them, they finally said, okay, we'll do it. We have to. It's kind of like that. Like, you guys kept asking for it. And I thought, like, well, there's a video and it shows what one looks like, so you should be able to make it. When I built the course, I was like, oh, wow. You don't know what you know. Just like you don't know what you don't know, you really don't know what you know until you try to put it into a configuration to teach it to other people. As Ben said yesterday, kind of teaching is the last stage of mastery if you do it right. If you actually do the thing before you teach the thing instead of just do it academically. When I built this course, I thought it would be like a couple hours long. And it'll take me a week to do. It took me two months. It's over eight hours of instruction plus two hours of bonus video. Multiple exams, certification at the end. And I, it was a lot of work, but I loved doing it. And I'm looking forward to doing more courses like this for you. If this one, you know, makes the time put in worth doing. It's very inexpensive. It's 40 bucks. It's $35 for MSB members. Again, simplified bioreactor composting. I'm telling you, this will transform your homesteading. This will transform your gardens. This will transform your pastures in a way that you really won't understand and you won't understand the why either until you take this course. Because as far as I know, there's nothing else quite like it. While it is about eight hours of instruction, it is, I've done it so that it is very easy to understand. The feedback we're getting already from people taking it has been great. You guys know who I am and what I'm about, so you know what my teaching's like. Um, it is a fantastic course, in my opinion. I really recommend you look at it again, homefoodsystems.com. With that, let's hear from Ron Paul in the Liberty Highlights for the Week, where he and Chris Rossini team up to talk about, isn't it just time that we let go of the empire? And you can see that now interest payments are more than the bloated defense spending. And this is just defense spending. This is not Medicare, Social Security, and all the other promises that people expect from the government. And as Dr. Paul, you know, just alluded to, this, this is offense spending. This is empire spending. If we had actual national defense, national, you know, our nation, defending our nation, it could be done at a fraction of the price. You just defend our nation. Uh, but that's not what our country does. We have a thousand military bases peppered all over the planet. We get in wars on a daily basis. We read about them. So this is not defense. This is 800 billion in empire spending. But now the interest in paying for all this is getting out of control. And unfortunately, this has been a joint effort. Uh, voting has not helped the American people one bit. Both parties, presidents of both parties, have been a part of this. 
Uh, if you go back to Obama, I got the numbers. It was $9 trillion that he added in eight years of his presidency. Trump, $7.8 trillion in four years of his presidency, half of the time of Obama. And now Biden is over $6 trillion so far. So both parties, you know, they really could care less about what anybody thinks about these wars. They are going for broke, and we're the ones that are going broke. Bipartisan ship is is uh, you know a, a facade you know it's a fake because it doesn't happen but both sides overlook the whole problem of of the debt uh, both sides overlook the problem of the monetary issue that you shouldn't be able to print money at will uh, and, and uh, deficits don't bother either side even though there's some you know on each side that might say something but that doesn't happen it just it just continues to go on and that uh, that is a big problem Yes. And uh, empires in general are largely illusions. Um, the so-called, you know, it's not one big happy family. These so-called allies that we have, they have to be bought off and bribed with our money. Of course, we go to work that our money is taken from us and it goes out as foreign aid, uh, you know, or they have to be coerced to stay in line. But after enough time goes by and the finances of the empire are strained like ours are, and it loses wars like ours has for decades, the most recent Ukraine. Uh, but, you know, they're so good at shifting to other parts of the world that, you, you know, you forget about all the losses behind you. But those losses are there and they all count and they all have cost us dearly. So our, our empire su suffers from both finance, finances that are strained and lost wars. And what happens after time goes by, is these so-called allies, they start to feel a little bit freer. Uh, you know, they start to peel off. They feel emboldened that, you know, maybe it's safe. We could, uh, we could get out of here now or get under the protection of another major power. And that's what we see with the BRICS, which are major powers, major nuclear powers in and of themselves. And I saw that January 1st, they added these five countries, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So these are very significant countries that have now gone over to the BRICS. They obviously feel that it's safe enough for them to do so. And if only our country could just, you know, quit it, <clears throat> but they don't. The thing about power, and we saw it with COVID, is they never ever want to quit. Even when it was up, the jig was up with the vaccines and the lockdowns and the masks, you still had the clingers. No, keep going. Put those masks on. Keep getting updated. They never, ever want to quit. And that's what it feels like, our empire. It doesn't want to quit. And this is not good for us because we end up paying the price. They're in total denial of this. And believe me, they don't lose any sleep of, at all with the policies that go bad. What it, what, they couldn't sleep at night if they realized that the policy, just in my lifetime, how much has gone on it? How many innocent people died? How many innocent Americans have died? How many innocent people that were the results of our bombs and our, you know, financial system? That, 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 uh, pe people, if they knew, uh, and they have to know that their policies have failed, but they lie, lie themselves up, but they don't go to bed uncomfortable. They don't have a conscience, and, uh, it's, it's something that, uh, they learn and they adapt to because I think if they had to admit the truth, they would be pretty miserable people. You know, if you would have told me 
that I would use the words I'm about to use right now in the early 90s, even after what I'm about to talk about it already happened, I would have said you're absolutely crazy. I'll never say that, but I will say it today. We should follow the example of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union broke up into its satellite republics and its, its primary nation, as always, was Russia. And Russia became its own thing and kind of let all the satellite republics go. Unfortunately, in some of the ways that it was done, it really caused problems up till today. Because, for example, Ukraine alone, Crimea and Donbass, Donbass were always part of Russia. They were not part of Ukraine. They were never part of Ukraine. One more time. They were never, ever, never, ever, never, ever, never, ever, never, 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 ever part of Ukraine as a thing onto itself. They were part of Russia. And Russia did this with many of the satellite republics, but Georgia and Ukraine are the ones that have caused the most grief over it. They extended the borders of the satellite republic into Russia proper, i.e. Crimea. That was done later by Khrushchev and earlier on. Uh, when Ukraine was brought into the fold, the Donbass. And Khrushchev really did the Ukraine thing because he was Ukrainian and wanted to retire there. That, that, that's as simple as that was. But the, the way this was done in many other places is that the Russians knew, since they were basically, uh, what's the word, annexing these areas, that some people may not be happy with that. So by having a significant population of ethnic Russians in these satellite republics, that would make them more stable. And during the Soviet Union's time, it did. It worked. When they broke up, instead of going back to the traditional borders, the borders that the Soviet Union established became and went away with them. And that's why they have problems today. But what, what, that's not what I'm really talking about. When I say we should follow their example, the Soviet Union got to the point of actual bankruptcy. They could see it. And they could see that they could no longer hold their empire together. And they had a choice. They could use military force to maintain that order, or they could let it go and say, this is what we really are. We're really Russia. Let's do Russia things. And that's not Russia's good or bad. It's just that was a smart move tactically. And Russia's in pretty good shape today, no matter what the TV tells you. They've certainly handed Ukraine's ass to them, just like I told you they would. We're in a bit of a different situation. We're not the kind of empire the USSR was, where all of our empire extension is mostly at our borders. And so it's not like Florida and Georgia will leave and become their own countries, or Texas and California, whatever. It's more that we are doing a lot more of what the Soviet Union also did, which is inserting ourselves through geopolitics, economics, and, and military force throughout the world. And we can't keep doing this. We're out of money. We don't have the money. Our interest on our debt is now like the third most expensive line item in our budget. Just our interest. So we can't keep doing this. But we will. Because I don't think we're as smart as the late 80s, early 90s Soviets were. They made a pragmatic choice. This will completely ruin us, or we have to hit a reset button. They chose a reset button. Our... I dare use this word, leadership, because they're not leaders. That's what they see themselves as. Our bureaucracy, our politicians, are hell-bent on damn the torpedoes straight ahead. And it will end in a ruined empire that might just make the fall of Rome look like a day at Disneyland eventually. Moving on, let's talk about building something for ourselves in spite of the fall of the empire. Because entrepreneurs have always done the best throughout history. 
How about a handyman business and figure out how to price things? Tim, Toolman Cook on that. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to answer another question for the expert council, so let's dive right in. This week's question comes from Mark. And he says, hey, Tim, the tool man cook, as a handyman, how do you go about deciding rates, estimating and bidding jobs? I'm getting started with a side hustle as a painter handyman. I have a Facebook social media page that brings in requests with one tiny job bid accepted and completed in the last month. Way to go, man. I don't have a problem doing the work itself. I need advice on handling the variables like travel time, job estimation, and generally making enough to come ahead. Feel free to contact me if you need any more details on it. Mark. Well, congratulations on taking a step to becoming your uh, own boss. Gives you more self-reliance and independence. I absolutely love it. Handyman service-based businesses are one of my favorite ways. I mean, it's the way we started everything we do now, but it is honestly the best way to start any sort of self-reliance business. And for the record, I was a handyman. I just sold the handyman portion of my business, the mow and snow part, after seven years. I'm really excited about not needing to get up early in the morning to blow snow. I have other things I can do, like create content for you guys. All right, so where do I start? Well, first thing, you're going to make mistakes. It's okay. You're going to underbid some jobs, and you're going to learn. Early on, it's okay to be nervous about not knowing what your price is going to be. You can do an educated guess. It's fine. You're going to go in. The more you do it, if you've done this work before, think back to how long it took you. So look at a, um, say it's a bedroom, right? And look back and say, how long would that take me? Or how long did it take me to make that, uh, to get that looking good? Okay. That's the first thing. So let's just pick a number of 20 hours. Okay. Now say you want to make $50 an hour, 20 hours times 50, a thousand dollars. Okay. That would be a rough hourly estimate. Now, figure in your supplies. Are you going to be adding supplies? Maybe, maybe not. If you're supplying the supplies, you need to add that in. So let's call it $300 for supplies, $1,300. Now, travel time to and from, if you want to include that in there, well, let's just pretend like the travel time was included in those first hours. So now you've got $1,300. Minimum, I'm going to add to that is another 15%. Sorry, 50%. So another, you know, let's just call it two grand because that gives you a buffer zone because here's what I'm going to tell you. When you first start out, you're going to under, almost everybody underprices themselves. You need to remember that you are 100% worth more than you think you're worth. If you think you're worth $25 an hour, you're right. If you think you're worth $100 an hour, you're also right. That's just kind of how it comes. So the first few jobs you're going to do, especially the first couple, you're going to do them and you're going to be like, I way underbid this job. But because you're committed, you're going to finish it for the price that you give the customer and you're going to suck it up as a learning expert, a learning exercise. And the next time you're going to say, oh, I'm going to bid that a little bit more. But honestly, look at it, figure out how many hours it's going to take you figure out what a very happy hourly rate is, uh, at least $50 an hour, I would say, but that's just me. I would go higher than that at this point. And then multiply it out and add at least a 50% buffer. And then you'll be happy. Um, Jack always said that you should always be a little bit uncomfortable with the pricing. And I took that to heart. And I have a really good theory on that. I would say I, I always wanted to get 50% of the jobs I bid. If I was getting 100% of the jobs I bid, my price was too high. If I was getting 0%, they were too low. But to me, 
Here's the example. If you price two jobs at $100 each and you get both of them, you're going to make $200. If you price two jobs at $200 each and get one of them, you're going to make $200. Which situation is better for you? So early on, it's going to take some time. You're going to get better at it. You're going to suck at it for a little while, and that's okay too. But just remember to bid and then bid it a little higher than you think and be confident and okay with not getting the job. When you're confident in what you do and confident in if they don't give me the price I want, don't negotiate it down. Just be like, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you. If you ever have, if you ever want more estimations in the future, call me and I will come out. I hope that helps. Uh, it's kind of where I started with things. And, you know, like I said, you will probably price a little low at first, and that's okay because you're going to be hungry and want to get the jobs. But as soon as you can, start getting your rates up. And the earlier you start with higher rates, the happier you'll be because it becomes much more difficult to raise your rates on existing customers than it does on new customers. So remember that as well. And if you want to follow up with me personally, I will do anything and everything I can to see that you're a success because I love seeing guys and girls Go out on their own and uh, make it. And you will. I believe in you, Mark. So thanks, man, for reaching out and letting me know what you're up to. Oh, and email me at therealtimcook at gmail.com. If you guys want to know more about what I'm up to, go by Toolman Tim's Workshop on YouTube or add Workshop Radio to your podcast feed. If you need a little extra content to motivate you, give that a go. And if you've got more questions for me, keep them coming, guys. I was on a 38-day road trip when I got back. I believe I had eight or nine questions. I love it. I love seeing this much content come in. I'll keep making it for you as long as you keep asking Jack for it. So things on entrepreneurship, the poverty mindset, handyman business, landscaping, being a solopreneur, anything and everything, send them along. I'll do my best to answer them for you. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So and two things I'll, I'll add on and kind of just reinforce here. One is, yeah, you need to know your local market's pricing. And so, you know, talking to homeowners who are getting bids and saying, whether I win or not, let me know the bid of my competitor. Most of the time they'll do that. They probably won't tell you before they've made a decision, but they'll probably tell you after, especially if they say you didn't get it. You know, well, what did they do it for? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going with them. That's okay. That's okay. I just want to know what they came in at on their price. You might find it was actually more than yours. And then you realize that maybe they had things you didn't. And it just can you help me do a better job the next time I, I put it? You'd be surprised at how helpful people would be if you you don't seem like you're pushing back trying to still win the business. You're trying to learn from it. So learning the price of your market. But I'll tell you what stops stupid lowball underbidding. When you're done and you've bid the job and you've done your takeoff and you figured out everything that you're going to charge for, all the material and your margins and all, and you look at the price, if you are 100% comfortable with your price, if you don't feel the least bit, especially when you're new to it, you don't feel the least bit uncomfortable that you're asking a little bit too much, raise your price. Raise your price. You can always lower your price. But... If you're good at what you do, and as you get better, you'll probably have to turn down work anyway. And the best way there is to turn down work is to have customers tell you, I don't want you because you're too expensive. Because that is the customer that will be an insufferable pain in your ass. The customer that's like, love what you do, done some work for me before, seems a little bit higher than the competition, but I like you. 
and I trust you, and I want, and I'm willing to pay a little more for better work, you might think they would be the more nitpicky painted. They never are. They're the ones just simply like, oh, can you, you know, they'll give you a punch list, but it's a reasonable. It's like, yeah, I should have saw that anyway. Sorry, man, I'll take care of it. I'm telling you, the people that beat you up on price are the ones you do not want. They're always the most insufferable pains in the asses on the market. So come up with a price and raise it a little bit anyway. Next up, Doc Bones talking about postritis, prostate problems that are non-cancer related and side effects from medication. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Oh, I almost forgot. Also, the co-author, along with Nurse Amy, of the brand new children's storybook called Snowbee, the First Snowman. That is out on Amazon. You'll find it on Amazon or on our website, store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from an anonymous listener who we'll call Andy. He writes, Doc Bones, I'm 51 years old and in relatively good health. Earlier this year, I had problems with urinary flow and some erectile dysfunction issues, so I met with a urologist. I used to run local races and some half marathons, wow, up until COVID, but I'm a fat, skinny person these days and sit at a computer all day. Six feet, 195 pounds. Not bad, Andy, not bad at all. My... A urologist did a few tests and measurements and determined my prostate was moderately inflamed. PSA level was well within normal range. That's a blood test that may identify prostate cancer in some cases. We discussed diet, which surprised me. My doctor suggested cutting caffeine down to one drink a day. I was drinking a coffee in the morning, tea around lunch, and soda or tea with dinner, usually a total of four to five drinks. He also put me on alfuzazin. That's also called uh, urotrexol, I think. After a few days, I had side effects. My legs and lower back began aching. The longer I was on it, the worse it became until I had trouble sleeping. I stopped taking it and followed up with the doctor. It took a couple of days for the side effects to wear off. On my follow-up visit to the doctor, he measured my prostate again and said it was less inflamed. I told him about my problem with alfuzazin, so he put me on tamsulazin. That's also called Flomax. This time I took it for a few weeks and began having the same side effects, but the pain was nearly all over my body. It was the same achiness like before, but it just wasn't in the legs and lower back. It hurt all over my body this time, and I could not find a comfortable position. I was in less pain if I walked around when compared to sitting or laying down. So when I was sure it was the side effect of the tamsulosin, I stopped taking it. This time it took about a week for the side effects to wear off and feel better. I saw a correlation. The longer it took for the onset of side effects, the longer it took for them to dissipate. After about a month of limiting my caffeine, my urinary flow is much better and the erectile dysfunction issue has gone away despite the fact that I'm not taking the medicine. I thought this would be a good to share with the TSP community because I've never heard of connection between prostate issues and too much caffeine. I would also be interested in any advice or words of wisdom you might have to share. I appreciate your generous time to the community. Thank you, Andy. Well, you're very welcome. The prostate gland's normal size is about the size of a walnut, I'd say, uh, located just below the bladder in men and surrounds the top portion of the urethra. That's the tube that drains urine from the body. The prostate and other sex glands produce a fluid called semen that transports sperm along during ejaculation. Andy, at your age, men begin to experience enlargement of the prostate a condition known as benign prostatic hyperplasia, or BPH. This can cause issues with urinary flow, 
and possibly erectile dysfunction, although not as much, at least early. And you are, indeed, awfully young for prostate cancer, so a blood test like the PSA being within normal range pretty much makes that a very unlikely diagnosis. So let's assume your doctor's diagnosis is correct. You have some kind of inflammation in the prostate instead, and we call that prostatitis. Prostatitis often causes painful or difficult urination, as well as pain in the groin, pelvic area, or even genitals. Bacterial infections cause some, but not all cases of prostatitis. It can come all of a sudden, or it can be a chronic problem. Some people have an inflamed prostate without even knowing it. It could be asymptomatic. You don't mention how the doctor ruled out a bacterial infection, but you weren't offered antibiotics, so... Caffeine is pretty well known to cause a number of issues, so let's talk about that. It affects the prostate in the following ways. It aggravates an enlarged prostate, worsening symptoms by increasing the rate of urine production, boosting the urge to urinate frequently, that's called frequency, and the sudden and intense need to urinate, that's called urgency. Andy, you didn't mention how your prostate compares in size to the average size prostate. You just mentioned it was inflamed, so let's assume it's not very enlarged. Caffeine can also cause discomfort in the very lower part of the abdomen. It can lead to dehydration, a bad thing for any kind of GU or genital urinary function issues in general, including all the way up to the kidneys, by the way. And as in your case, it indeed can increase prostatic inflammation and make it difficult to urinate. So it's reasonable to limit your intake of coffee, tea, and sodas unless they're caffeine-free or at least caffeine-limited. Now, being older than you, I've had my share of prostate issues. I've been offered Tamsulosin also, that's called Flomax, and Alfluoxacin, Uretraxel. These drugs work to treat benign prostatic hyperplasia, BPH, in adult men by relaxing the muscles in your prostate and bladder, which can reduce the symptoms and improve your quality of life and your ability to urinate. As with all medicines, however, there are indeed side effects, which affect some people more than others. After reading the possible side effects, which by the way, they are numerous and which you have experienced some, I decided not to take either of these medicines and just soldier on. Your letter just confirms my personal opinion, but I will say that some men swear by one or the other of these medicines, and it might help indeed avoid or at least delay invasive surgical procedures in elderly men. Despite that, some simple lifestyle changes like decreasing caffeine intake can indeed make a difference as it did in your case. Consider yourself lucky that all you needed was a little tincture of time, that's T-I-M-E, and that it worked for you. Some additional things that I would add here, Andy, is to make sure that you know how your doctor knows that you just have inflammation but not infection. If infection hasn't been ruled out, it should because you could need antibiotics for a while, up to several weeks. Of course, if you're experiencing pain, consider ibuprofen or, or acetaminophen, that's Advil, Motrin, or Tylenol, and also make sure that they follow up at your doctor's office with non-invasive tests like sonograms to monitor the prostate over time. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about off-grid medical topics in the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. And get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So my only add there is that you're talking about inflammation. And you know what this what is this inflammatory? A keto or carnivore diet. And it may be worth trying, since in your own words, you're skinny fat. Moving on. Um, let's hear from Patrick Rohrman with an update on the new 
Rorman Compound. Hey guys, this is Patrick with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel segment of the week. This week, I do not have a question that I will be answering for you. Rather, some exciting news, kind of an update of what's going on and where I've been. So it's been a little while since I put out some content. Uh, as you may or may not know, we purchased some land at the beginning of the year and we've been in the process of moving. The land does not have a house or uh, much on it as far as livable space so we have a we have a barn that we started to remodel we built some little cabins that we've been staying in and uh, we've just been trying to get by with what we have and we've had lots of different plans on what we would do plans have changed and uh, just trying to make decisions uh, figure out which direction we're going and it seems like you get a direction and you start making progress and then something changes and you got to come up with a new plan. So that's where we're at. And things have been exciting. They've been fun and lots and lots of work. So have kind of a big announcement to make next week. Showing up with some equipment and breaking ground on a new shop. I wasn't going to build a new shop. I was going to kind of make do with the barn that was here and try to make it into a shop after uh, just frustration of working with all the problems like I have in the past with something that was already existing. I decided to go ahead and break ground and start ground up and building a new shop. I'm excited to be able to have a blank canvas to work from <clears throat> and uh, design a shop that will work the best and be the most efficient. I'm hoping to be able to bring people in and teach classes. To be able to design a shop from the ground up will really help with that. So anyways, I'm super excited to see um, how quickly this moves along. Dirt work shouldn't take more than a week or two and we could possibly have concrete poured by the first of the year we'll see how quick the building goes up but stay tuned if you have any questions feel free to shoot them out look forward to keeping you guys updated on the progress thanks for uh, bearing with us in this time of trying to uh, get settled back in get everything back up and running it's been a good year lots of orders have still gone out despite being in the transition period of moving and building and everything else Right now, a lot of my shop is in storage, and I'm excited to get equipment back up and running. This has been Patrick with MT Knives. Have a great day. I'm just going to say that some really good things have happened in Patrick's life that have put him into this place, and it's up to him whether he wants to share how that worked out or not. But I am very happy for him, and it's one of those things where somebody's life gets really better, and there's two ways you can respond to it. It must be nice which is loser language, are good for them. And Patrick, good for you, brother. I'm proud of you. I can't wait to see what this kind of upgrade in your world brings out uh, in the world of the Roarmans themselves and for MT Knives. Next up, I have a question or a, 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 a segment from Sean Mills on building backup solar systems for your own use. Hey, everybody. It's Sean Mills with Hack My Homestead and the Hack My Homestead podcast. Today I'm answering an expert counsel question from Jim. Jim says, instead of going with the fad of a quote-unquote solar power generator, what parts would you recommend for a DIY system for backup power for critical loads, keeping the total cost under $2,500? 
I would want this completely separate from house power and would run extension cords to a system in the garage. Also would like to charge batteries from a generator in case of an extended outage in winter short days or otherwise lack of sunshine. What would you advise? Jim. Well, Jim, you're in luck and your timing is impeccable because I recently did a podcast and a YouTube video on this exact subject where I built essentially the same thing as an EcoFlow Delta Plus system with slightly lower battery capacity for about $1,200 and with 25% larger battery capacity for about $1,650. So let me run through that process real quick for you. What we're trying to do here is we're trying to replicate a system that's got 3,600 watt hours of battery. It's rated for 3,600 watts of output. Uh, it can go up to 7,200 and surge. And uh, it's capable of taking about 1,600 watts of solar. And uh, it's got, you know, some regular uh, AC output, uh, you know, like your regular plugs. It's got some USB-C. It's got some USB-A. It has the ability to charge from a car, uh, like cigarette lighter adapter. But the reality is, is that it's so inefficient uh, and you get so little power out of those things to begin with that I'm not even going to try to replicate that because I think it's a gimmick more than anything else. What we're really trying to do is we're trying to build a system that we can plug into the wall and charge the battery. Or we can plug into solar panels and charge the battery. And then we can pull power from that battery and utilize it in 120 volts. Now, the Delta Pro can be paralleled and it can be built to where it can put out 240 volts. But I've heard of so many people having problems with doing that when their lines are imbalanced. So line one versus line two, if it gets imbalanced more than like 30%, both systems shut off. So we're not going to try to replicate that. We're going to try to build one system. And I'll probably later do another video of building a system where it's straight 240 volt split phase out of the box. But for now, we're just trying to replicate the Delta Plus. So what I was able to do is I was able to go get a uh, lithium iron phosphate 50 amp hour, uh, 51.2 volt battery for $409 off of Amazon. I paired that with a Renogy 3500 watt inverter that can take 4,000 watts of solar input. And then I paired that with some different connectors. And, uh, you know, I went with an XT60 uh, for the solar connector and then an XT60 to MC4 adapter cable. And uh, I'll just run through kind of the, the, the top end of this. For the battery, it was $409. The inverter was $499. I did go ahead and get a Bluetooth adapter so that you can use the app to control the unit. That was $24. Uh, it was $29 for an external computer fan that will run on 48 volts with a fan control that had a thermometer. So I can set that to kick the big fan on anytime the temperature gets over whatever my set point is to add some additional cooling in the box. It was $39 for what I'm calling the charge side wiring. So that would be the XT60 uh, wire, the XT60 to MC4 connector, and an RV 150 or 120-volt 15-amp uh, plug. So both of those are mounted on the outside. So I can plug in solar panels or I can plug it into the wall. It was um, $40 for the AC output and receptacles. So what I'm doing there is I'm just using like the uh, conference table style receptacles where they're embedded into the box. 
Uh, one has an on-off switch. It's got four outlets, two USB-A and one USB-C. And then the other one on the opposite side just has two regular 15 uh, amp outlets, two USB-As and one USB-C. So I've actually got the exact same amount of output uh, on this system as the Delta Pro has. I spent $80 for the box. I probably could have built it in one of the smaller boxes, but I went with one of those 50-gallon rolling plastic toolboxes because I'm going to put a little sheet of plywood on the end so all the electrical components will be on you know, the right two-thirds of the system when you open the lid, and then the left part is open for storage. So I can put all my extension cords, splitters, battery chargers, and uh, solar cabling in that. And then it's about $30 for the wiring and about $50 for any additional hardware and 2x4s. I didn't actually have to spend that $80 because I had everything I need just laying around. Uh, but with if you had to go and buy all of those components, you're looking at about $1,200. So $1,200 to build that whole system with a slightly smaller battery capacity. Now, I went with 2,500 watt-hours because it, the weight-to-power ratio was really great. If I did bump it up and go with 12-volt batteries, uh, four of those wired in series to give me 48 volts, then I'd be in for about 1550 for the same components, and I'd need about another $100 worth of thicker gauge wire and terminals. So let's say $1,650. So for $1,650, I can build that system with... 25% more battery capacity, and then for less than 50% of the price at 1200 I can build it with 33% less capacity. Now, for me, I'm going to pair that with a set of 50-foot PV cables that I can get off of Amazon with the MC4 connectors already on for $65, and three 315-watt used solar panels that I can get for $75 each. So for basically another 300 bucks, I can get... 900 watts of solar to pair with this system and that's enough to actually charge my battery from zero back up to a hundred percent in less than one full day uh, you asked about generator input like i said i've got the rv plug on the outside of this thing you can plug a generator right to it plug it into the wall whatever you want to do so if you go check out my YouTube channel, you can see two different videos where I walk through the whole build. It's about an hour between the two videos, but I literally walk through 100% step-by-step of the process. And then also episode six, uh, 75 on my podcast, I run through everything I just talked about in much greater detail. Uh, and then if you have any questions about the system, you can email me, Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at hackmyhomestead.com. Uh, I'll walk you through, you know, if you have questions about how to build this system for yourself, I can walk you through that. And I did want to mention, I've got access to about 20 truckloads of those used 315-watt solar panels for $75 each. So if anyone's interested in getting a pallet or more of those, they come 25 to a pallet, send me an email, and I'll help get you hooked up by the end of the year. All right, guys, well, thanks for sending the question in. Keep on getting those over to Jack, and I'll keep getting them answered. And the video that Sean mentioned, if you go to today's show notes, uh, right next to his bullet point, you'll see a link where you can check out that video. Moving on, let's now hear from uh, uh, Dr. Ken Berry on black seed oil and someone that says they're doing keto that didn't and how to remedy that. Uh, Ken, take it away. 
Hey, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today for Mark. The question is, is black seed oil considered a seed oil? Yes. Uh, Mark's wife has COPD, elevated blood pressure, and type 2 diabetes. She's been eating keto for over a year, but her A1C is still slightly over 7 and is taking Janumet XR for blood sugar. Trilogy for the COPD and several blood pressure medications. She's been taking black seed oil because it may help with all these issues, but I'm concerned because of the label of seed oil. Okay, good question, Mark. Number one, any oil that comes from a seed is seed oil. It is going to contain omega-6 fatty acids and other things that you probably don't want to ingest. Number two, if she's been eating keto for over a year and her A1C is still over seven, then she has not been eating keto for over a year. She may have been eating keto-ish or dirty keto, but she's not been eating true keto. She needs to start tracking her carbohydrates. Uh, Jack has a good car- carbohydrate tracker he likes. I like Carb 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 Manager. That's an app you can get on your phone. I think it's free. But she needs to be eating 20 total grams or less of carbs each day. And if she were, in fact, doing that for the last year, it would be impossible for her to have an A1C over 7. Also, when she lowers her carbohydrate intake like that and keeps it that way, that's going to lower her blood pressure. She'll be able to stop some of the blood pressure medicine. It will improve her COPD at least to some degree. Uh, Black seed oil and indeed all of the different herbal and seed remedies are what I call 1% solutions, meaning that they might help the situation 1%. But if she'll eat actually 20 total gram a day keto, that will give her 80% benefit instead of 1% benefit. So I would stop wasting money on the black seed oil, and I would focus on actually eating a true real food 20 total gram a day ketogenic diet that's gonna uh, she'll she'll no longer be diabetic within six months if she does that her copd will improve and her blood pressure will improve hope this helps i'll see you next time this is dr barry so i i recently had a discussion with ken on uh twitter and he was kind of he kind of sort of was hitting on it right toward the end here the whole superfood thing. And he said, there is no superfoods. And he's talked about a lot of things. There is supplements as well. And he, he had mentioned elderberry. And I said, well, you're right. Elderberry is not a superfood. But it is a herbal remedy. And if you have sore throat, cough, flu symptoms, it is a very effective one. So I think that those types of remedies are not necessarily things that we need in our diet all the time, but they can be relied upon. Black seed oil I know nothing about, and it is a seed oil because, like you said, it comes from a seed. Anyway, um, the interesting thing is the term superfood. I completely agree with Ken. I just want to put this little bee in your bonnet. Maybe I'll expand on it in a future episode. If something's a superfood, you should be able to live on it. So somebody says, you know, goji berry, and I like goji berry. Goji berry is a superfood. No, it's not. It's just a berry. It tastes good. It has some antioxidants in it. It's not a superfood. You try to live on goji berry, I can tell you right now what will happen because I know somebody that ate a bag of them, and that's not living on them. You'll shit your brains out. It'll give you squirts. You, you, too many of them have a laxative effect, and that'll dehydrate, and you'll die. Well, that's not a superfood. This whole superfood thing is a made-up marketing term. That's what it is. But I will tell you, 
the closest thing we have to a superfood is red meat, and you can pick one. You can pick beef, lamb, you know, elk. Pick one, and I'll prove it to you. You give me a list of 25 things that you've been convinced by clever, colorful marketing is a superfood, and we'll get 26 people, and of those 26 people, every one of them will try to live on a single food for three weeks, because if we go longer now, people are going to die. Most of them won't make it three weeks, but you give me one of those 25 people and scratch one of your superfoods and let that one person live on nothing but lamb. They can have any piece of the lamb that they want, but they're going to live on lamb, or any piece of the cow that they want, and they're going to live on cow. Their health will improve over three weeks. Well, so which one's the superfood? Just something for some of you holdouts to think about. I can live on cow, period. Give me your superfood, aronia, goji, broccoli, kale. Go live on it. And let me know what a superfood is after about two days. We we will immediately come to an agreement that you're wrong. (laughs) I'm just sorry. The superfood thing is nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. Next up, we haven't heard from uh, Matt Sersley for quite a while. I'm not getting questions for him, but Matt is part of the expert council. He's the Agorist tax attorney, uh, and he has some information from you about a form that you will need to fill out if you are a 25% or higher holder in an LLC or many other types of entities or occupy a certain key position within one. And this is important. you got a year to get it done, but this is important. Not because it's a good thing, but because the alternative is bad. Hello, this is Matthew Sersley, and I am the Agorist Tax Advisor. There is a major new financial regulation that went into effect in 2024. It is part of an anti-money laundering scheme that's not going to do any good, but we are still going to have to do some paperwork. Every single uh, LLC, corporation, LP, LLP, basically any business with an entity uh, is going to have to file a beneficial ownership information report this year. If you had a company before 2024, you've got a year to file this. If you create the company in 2024, you currently have 90 days to file this. And the current regulation says in 2025 or later, you will have 30 days to file this. It is a free form. It is a one-time filing unless you need to amend it because maybe ownership changes or something. Uh, It applies Beneficial owners are people who have 25% or more ownership in a company. It also applies to senior officers of a company, like a CEO, CFO, COO, or general counsel, and anyone who performs a similar function to any of these offices. It also applies to anyone who has a right to appoint or remove any senior officer. Finally, it includes any important decision makers for the company, and, uh, well... They haven't really defined that, so really helpful. Uh, Failure to file this can result in a $500 civil fine per day. Now, many early reports of this said that that fine maxed out at $10,000. That is not the way I currently read the law. Instead, uh, if there is willful failure to file or fraud, they can criminally charge you and seek up to two years of prison time and a criminal fine that does cap out at $10,000. But as I read this law, that $500 per day fine 
has no cap, and that is per filing you should do. So if you have four different companies you are a beneficial owner of, then you have to you can get a two thousand dollar per day fine as I read this law. Uh, this filing is really annoying because you're going to put in the same information like four times in it. It's it's just kind of stupid. But there is no reason not to do this. If you have an entity, even if you're not using it, this applies to inactive entities um, that have been – unless you're older than 2020 and haven't done anything with it in like a year or two. Um, so if you had a company that you started and didn't do anything with it, you may still need to file this. There is no reason not to file this now. Even if you have a year to do it, get it filed. Um this is going to be something that's going to burn a lot of people, and it's not fair that it's going to do that because a lot of people aren't going to hear about it. But I wanted to make sure that the listeners of this podcast heard about it. So please um, make sure to protect yourself and file this. Now, if you want to get additional advice from me, uh, you can reach out to me at agoristtaxadvice.com slash TSP or agoristtaxadvice.com slash LFTN. That will uh, that you download a free report. It will also add you to my mail list, and from there you can contact me to ask questions about this or any other tax advice you have. Thanks everyone for listening, and make sure that you get this filed because it's going to screw a lot of people over who don't know about this. So just a little bit on this, the excuse for it is this is about foreign entities and foreign trading and money laundering. And your little LLC in Iowa or whatever could be enabling Russians to get around sanctions or to launder money or something like that. So we got to stop the money laundering and the international thing and all. You know, like if you want to do that, look at the president's finances. If you actually mean it, no, this is. I guarantee you, it's going to result in some fallout with like catching things that have nothing to do with the supposed mandate or, or whatever behind it. Uh, but if you are an LLC and you're filing a tax return as, with LLC income on it, it's going to be pretty obvious that you are, you've got a problem here. And they will come after you, and $10,000 a day adds up pretty quick. And federal penitentiaries are not a place that you want to be. So... There is no way around this, and again, it's just a form that basically gives them info. This is why it's stupid. It gives them information they already have. Every single LLC, C Corp, S Corp, LLP, etc., has filed with the state that they're incorporated in, and has provided a list of the people that own the corporation and how much they own. So this is information that if they really wanted it, they already had it. They're creating a database, and they want your help in making it easier for them to do so. Normally, I oppose everything government does, and I think this is a, this is a bad thing. It's certainly not a good thing, even if it's neutral or whatever, but it's one of those decisions that if you make this, I'm not doing it, you are going to regret it. You might not even regret it immediately. They might not catch you for a couple, three years, and then they'll give you a bill for $3.5 million and throw you in prison. Don't let this happen to you. Moving on, I want to talk to you guys now about the Bitcoin ETF. There's also a video that has extra uh, Q&A session added into what you'll hear here because this was done as a live stream. So my segment today for this podcast, 
again, is about the Bitcoin ETFs. And I'm, I'm basically coming at this from two angles. The first one is, what does this mean for Bitcoin as a whole? And it's really the second one. It's the second piece I'm going to talk about. Because the, the other piece is, will the, the, the uber-toxic maxis that have been spewing FUD about this ETF for three months roughly now, and they've been ramping up their FUD as we've gotten closer and closer. And I want to be clear, a lot of these people I like. I really do. The, probably the worst attention whore in this has been Max Kaiser, and I've always considered him a little bit of a freak, but overall liked him in general. And he's gotten so bad with it, I've stopped following him on social media, probably not permanently, but at least until he shuts his hole about this. But a lot of other Maxis, I won't name them, I don't want to really call anybody, I'm calling out behavior, not the person here, have just been talking stupid about this. They're saying things like it could destroy Bitcoin. You can't go out, guys. I mean, really, shut up. You can't go out for some of you guys five years, some of you guys like me, ten years in this game saying it's immutable, uncensorable, indestructible, but if BlackRock has an ETF, it's all over. Like, you sound retarded when you talk like that. Don't go linking an ETF creation by the SEC to a bill proposed by Senator Warren who has never proposed and passed a bill in her senatorial career. Okay? Like, just stop it. Stop it. So what I want to talk about is how do these ETFs work and how some terminology that's being used by people that know better is being used to scare you from the maxi side. Then we'll talk about what it really means. So the biggest thing that they've run their holes about is that these are all cash-in, cash-out funds. Well, I think there's something like 60 other ETF categories that that's the case with. It's not the only one. It's not like this is somehow different. And, and just understand what that means. That means that you put cash in and you get shares in the fund, and you get if you sell your shares, you get cash out. That's all that means. It's the on-ramp, off-ramp for Bitcoin inside certain vehicles. And we'll get to that in a second. We get into what it means. But the term cash creation, oh, it's fiat. This is a person who either knows better and is dead-faced lying to you, or a stupid person that doesn't know what something means, so they decide it means a thing without checking to see what it means. So let's. what does cash creation in an ETF mean? It means that when I put cash in, the fund manager takes the cash, buys the underlying asset if they don't already have a reserve for it, and that action creates the share. It is not creating money out of thin air. It doesn't work that way. And anybody that tells you it does is too stupid for you to spend one more molecule of oxygen going into your body on listening to that person. Even if they are otherwise a smart, intelligent person, they have checked out of the building with their brain for this discussion and they need to be ignored. That's how it works. You maxis need to shut up or start talking truth. One or the other. Because this is the straw man fallacy. If you own an ETF, it's not your keys, not your coin. No one's saying any different, dumbass. No one has said any different. You shouldn't buy your Bitcoin in an ETF. Don't sell your Bitcoin to buy Bitcoin in an ETF. Like, no one's saying this. Because they know they're full of shit. And I think it's because they just want attention. And they, you know, if you are a Bitcoin influencer and you're a maxi, 
the one problem you have, I mean, you made the right decision. Don't get me wrong. The one the problem you have, since you don't have a show like mine, you're not going to like turn around the next day and talk about how to plant a garden. You only have Bitcoin, so you have to come up with some shit to talk about. It's the only thing there. So FUD sells views better than no FUD. I can attest to this because I fight it all the time. You guys know if I wanted maximum viewership, maximum listenership, maximum numbers, you know what I would do. I would get on the air every day and tell you how bad everything is and tell you the world is going to end and you need to get your beans, bullets, and band-aids or you're all going to die. Because when I do a show that's even in that vein, my, my viewer count on a live stream goes through the roof. My total number of downloads goes through the roof. I get more attention that way. But I'm more concerned with the truth than attention. Some of these people, I guess they're not. So now, let's talk about what is the purpose of this ETF, and what does it mean for Bitcoin long term? The purpose of a Bitcoin ETF is not for a person that wants to stock Bitcoin, stack Bitcoin long term with money that they have freely available. If you have money freely available, like you have cash, it's not in any sort of institutional form, it's not in an IRA, it's not in a 401k, it's completely available to you. And the purpose of you buying Bitcoin is to hold it pr approximately forever, and you buy an ETF, I agree, you're an idiot. And no one in the Bitcoin community that's been stacking stats for any length of time is saying anything other than that, so shut up and quit acting like people are. The purpose of an ETF is to release institutional money that otherwise could not buy Bitcoin, or to allow people who have some mental block from buying it on exchange and holding it in core storage, cold storage, to buy it. Well, I'm trying to educate those people to what freedom looks like. They don't give a fuck. They don't give a fuck what you're trying to do. Do you not understand? That is the whole point of why all of us who've actually been doing what you say you're doing anyway, Maxis, which is stacking your ass off, this is why we're all about to become incredibly wealthy, and we are. And it's not too late. You didn't wait too long. Look at the price today. It hasn't moved much. We'll get to that. But the window's closing. And I've told you this was coming for years. I told you this was inevitable. And I think it was about three years ago I said, I don't know when, but it's inevitable. And I said, probably 2023, back in 2021. And I expected it to be early, so I'm off by about a year. Wham. It's still inevitable that this would happen. You have, what do you maxis say? The hardest money known to man. Well, there's an ETF for every hard money, for every asset class out there today. You can invest in dialysis equipment through an ETF, basically profiting on the misery of type 2 diabetics the system created. How in the hell are you going to sit here and preach how hard as money Bitcoin is and expect there wouldn't be a bit? There's a dollar ETF. There's a euro ETF. There's a gold ETF. There's a silver ETF. There's a cadmium ETF. There's a nickel ETF. Okay? There are ETFs for everything. Of course there was going to be one for this, if it was what we said it was. Right? Right? If it was what we said it was. And it is. So this was inevitable. Who is going to buy this, and who should buy this? You might think, well, you know, you just said that you're a Bitcoin maxi jack. You're just not one of these jackass maxis. And you're all in on Bitcoin. And you only talk about Bitcoin anymore. And you've got a cold stack of Bitcoin, so clearly you're never going to buy any Bitcoin in an ETF. You would be wrong. I will absolutely buy Bitcoin in an ETF because I have a great big IRA account. 
I rolled money from 401k into inside that IRA. It's really easy to buy Bitcoin now. But Jack, you can set up. Yeah, but I have contribution limits if I set up a straight IRA for Bitcoin. If I go tomorrow, I have contribution limits. And it's much cheaper to trade in and out of Bitcoin in an ETF than it is on an exchange. So traders will traders are going to migrate like crazy to this. That's going to pump liquidity into the market, and what's going to happen is exchanges like Coinbase at all are going to lower their fees to compete. So that's good for stacking. You start to see how this all works together because if I have a choice and I can pay VanEck 0.25% and buy at spot Or I can give Coinbase or Gemini or whoever their fucking huge fee that they're charging. What do you think I'm going to do if I'm a trader in it to make money? That's not what I am. But there's lots of them out there. But Bitcoin's not for trading. It's to be the hardest. To... They don't care what you think. Stop thinking only about your little world and think about the broad, dadgone world of the whole globe. The 8 billion people you've been talking about competing for 21 million units of Bitcoin for 10 years. And now that's a bad thing because you got nothing else to say. There is more money out there in, in forms that can't access Bitcoin until yesterday than there is money that could access it before yesterday. All the money that's coming up till now, there's more of it available in this institutionalized world than every penny that's coming up till today. You have to really think about that. So, Jack, I've got this on social media. I'm like, I don't get it. It finally passed. Nothing happened to the price. Of course it didn't. And I told you last week, when it happened, don't expect anything to happen right away. The damn thing's only been trading for a day. I think it started trading today, right? It just started trading. These funds just started trading. Now, what's going to happen is you have 11 giant corporations with billion-dollar marketing budgets, and they are all now fighting to become the GLD of Bitcoin. There will only be one of these funds that is truly dominant. You'll have kind of a number two, like a, like a, 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 a Hertz and, uh, what was it, uh, Budget, We Try Harder, or whoever the other, like the number two was, and the number two was way behind. And then you'll have like a bunch, of, and some of them will literally just not work out. They will not have enough inflow, because there's only so many places for it to go. So now they all have to fight. And they only have really three things they can do to fight for, for attention. Straight up marketing, so they all have to do that. So that's good for Bitcoin, because people talking about Bitcoin is good for Bitcoin. Okay, so they got that one. They got fees, and you can't go lower than zero, and you can't make money at a, an internal eternal zero, so they all have to have some kind of a fee, 0.2, 0.15, some percentage that they have to compete with, and transparency. Transparency is going to be, well, here's our addresses, so we can be audited. That's it. That's all there is. There's nothing else for them to compete with. So they have to go out and beat each other's guts in, to gain capital because you don't go out and spend tens of millions of dollars like these companies did to get something approved and then sit back and go, if it didn't work, oh well. They are all going to try to kill each other over this. That is also good for us. But here's the bigger thing, and this is what I've said since the very beginning. It's why I've always supported this 
even though my support means nothing. This is something else you Maxis need to learn. Your opinion on this meant nothing to it happening or not happening. It never did. Quit acting like you're influencing it because you're talking about it. You influence the people that listen to you. Don't in, in, you do not influence the macro trend. This was going to happen because it is the best asset, like you've been saying. And since it is, it's only a matter of time before the Black Rocks of the world want a piece of the action. Okay? So that's going to happen. That's going to happen. Somebody in the live stream says, Maxi here. Yeah, you're probably not the kind I'm talking about, though. I, I would also call myself a Maxi. I'm calling them temporarily dumbass Maxis. One of them in particular talks shit about it the entire time, and the day after, it's like 250K now in play. Yeah, at least you, you change tactics. A lot of them still haven't. Right, so there's this massive amount of money, and it's not just Joe with a 401k. It's the asset manager for the pension fund for the Boston, Massachusetts Police Department and tens of thousands of other entities like that managing these retirement accounts. A lot of the pressure to get this ETF approved wasn't from Van Eck and BlackRock. It was from massive numbers of financial advisors, massive, massive numbers of pension fund managers that said, we feel that we are literally committing malpractice by not having some exposure to Bitcoin in these portfolios because it's the best performing asset of the last 15 years, the end, full stop. So those people can now say, we're going to take 2% allocation into Bitcoin. And I know that doesn't sound like much, and Michael Seller, go all in or nothing, whatever. That's not how the world works. Let's focus on how the world works. 2% of the pensions being managed would pump, not even existing, new money in this year will pump about $300 billion into Bitcoin. 2% of the contributions this year. Now, what is 2% of all of it? Start doing that math. And I want to show you a little bit of what's actually going on here. So let me show you something. This graphic is a year old, so it's out of date. And yet it's still very, very impressive. What it shows is the top 25 assets by market cap in the world. Chevron, MasterCard, Spider, Meta, Walmart. Those are at the bottom. Up at the top, you have things like gold being the, the king. $12 trillion in market cap. Next closest market cap, Apple, $2.1 trillion. This is last year. Apple's gone up significantly. It's about $2.8 trillion. Number two asset class in the world, Apple, $2.8 trillion. Think about that. Saudi Aramco at $1.8 trillion. They're still about right there. Microsoft, $1.7. They're closer to $2 million today. Silver still holding strong at right about $1.3 trillion, right where it was a year ago. The price is pretty static. The difference is all of these assets can have their supply expanded and or contracted. You're really not going to contract the supply of silver, but you can. Microsoft can buy back shares and contract. They can issue new shares and expand. So can Apple, so can MasterCard, etc. As of January last year, Bitcoin was already the 18th most valuable asset sitting right over here by market cap on planet Earth. But today, their market cap is around $900 billion. That means that today, right now, as I'm talking to you, the market cap value of Bitcoin puts it at the number 8 asset in the world by market cap 
between Amazon slightly ahead of it and Berkshire Hathaway significantly behind it. Right now, before this thing has even traded, before the next halving, that's where we're sitting. That's damn impressive. Now you start looking at this money coming into it. Again, 1-2% of these pension funds is hundreds of billions of dollars competing for a shrinking available supply of Bitcoin. I want to kind of just give you some market cap numbers. So what do we need Bitcoin to get to, to take, assuming silver kind of stays static, to, to pass silver and become the fifth most valuable asset in the world? And that will also pass Amazon. It's a cakewalk from here. $69,000 will give a $1.38 trillion market cap. $1.38 trillion at $69,000. That's what's on your screen right now if you're watching the video. What happens, I don't think we're even pushing our luck to say Bitcoin hits $100,000 this cycle. It would be so out of touch with the previous cycles. Without, I'm saying if there was no ETF, that would still happen. That is a $2 trillion market cap. $2 trillion. That would put Bitcoin ahead of Saudi Aramco and just behind Apple is the number three most valuable asset on the planet by market cap. I don't even think that's in question. What would it take for Bitcoin to overtake Apple and sit with the only remaining asset that you can just buy a piece of and hold in a portfolio being gold? Well, let's see what happens if we change this number here to 125,000. That goes to $2.5 trillion. $2.5 trillion, that actually would still be under Apple. Because Apple, again, had a pretty good year last year and is about $2.8 trillion today. So we got to do a little better than $125. let us go $135. $2.7 trillion, not quite enough. $145. $2.9 trillion. There's your number. At $145,000, Bitcoin becomes the second most valuable asset class in the world. You don't think that's going to happen, then you have not been paying attention. And this is what I, 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 it, 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 it dumbfounds me. You start throwing out numbers like that, like, oh, it can't go that high. But if I would have told you when it was $600 that it was going to be $20,000 someday, you would have said that was crazy. And if I told you it would have ever hit $69,000, which you got with an ass hair of in the last all-time high, you would have said it was impossible five years ago, unless you're among the initiated. Now all this money is opening up. So again, let's just review who this is for. Pension fund managers, institutional money managers, individuals with IRAs and 401ks, high-frequency traders who will save money over the fees that they pay on an exchange. You know what that equals? Liquidity. Liquidity is good for Bitcoin, and over time it will reduce volatility. But we're not anywhere near that just yet. What do I think a, a reasonable price expectation for this cycle is? About $250,000 is the high, which it will retract from. But about $250,000. I would tell you that I would think it would be the next cycle. You know, when you get into like the 2028 having cycle, where you're looking at potentially a million dollar coin a piece. That's not that long in the world of building wealth. And I think there's something else 
that we need to understand here. I could be way low. And we need to understand the having and its actual impact on price before we really appreciate what just happened. So before the ETF, the biggest occurrence in Bitcoin is having. In other words, about every four years, we can predict within days, the supply of Bitcoin gets cut in half. So in the very beginning, people mined Bitcoin on, on, on laptops that wouldn't even work today with today's operating systems. They were that shitty, and they were mining a lot of Bitcoin with it, but Bitcoin was not worth very much. And the block reward, every block, was huge. But this was by design. So you had basically an inflationary supply. It leveled off and effectively becomes a deflationary supply. Because even though new coin is being generated... There's so little of it available, the actual amount you can buy and trade keeps shrinking. Most of the Bitcoin in existence has been held for more than a year. That's long-term holders. They don't sell easy. So there's a very small fraction of the 20 million in circulation that are actually available. Effectively, this is how I feel. The ETF has created an eternal halving. I know that doesn't seem to make sense. Think of it as an annual eternal having, Because it doesn't matter that the supply of new Bitcoin is still coming in. And we're, I think the block reward is going to like 3.15 Bitcoin per block. That's a lot less than 6.25 or whatever it was before. I, I think it's like going to go to... 3.125, I think is where it's going. So you have a supply shock. Well, what happens in the halving? Everybody talks about it. The price goes up prior to it. Everybody FOMOs in. The halving comes. Everybody goes, woohoo! And then nothing happens. It goes sideways a little bit down, a little bit up, sideways a little bit down, a little bit up. And about 90 days after that, that's about how long it takes for the supply shock to move through the chain. And then it goes into it. And usually that's about when it'll hit its all-time high. Go look. And that usually has a pretty good year, the year following it. And then crypto winter comes, and then you have a build-up back, and then you have the next halving, and it goes over and over again. But the supply is about not the total amount of Bitcoin, the total amount of Bitcoin that people are willing to trade. And that number keeps getting smaller. What do you think happens when pension funds and shit are throwing three, $400 billion a year buying the coin? You're, you're having not the total supply, but the available supply. And this now will go forever. And then the last piece, and this is the real reason I wanted this, more than any other reason. There's, you know, I'd say my number two reason, principle. If you can have an ETF for nickel, or cadmium, or gold, or silver or dollars, or yen, or ruples, or rupees, or pesos, or anything else that's a monetary instrument or a commodity, then there's no reason Bitcoin should be excluded from that, given that it is one of the most valuable assets in the world. The end, infinity. So that's principle. That's number two, though. Number one, I'm tired of hearing, they're going to ban Bitcoin. It's going to go zero. Government's going to shut it down. Blah, blah, blah. Shut up with your FUD. What I want to see is a lot less Bitcoin obituaries going into the 99 Bitcoins obituary uh, write-up at this point. Because here's why. You don't fuck with teachers. You don't fuck with cops. I'm talking about the government here. You don't fuck with the, the auto workers union. 
You don't fuck with firefighters, right? There's just classes of people that if you're the government, those are the people you pacify, you don't fuck with. Okay? Unions, public servants, you don't fuck with. And you know what you really don't fuck with? You don't fuck with their retirement. So by the end of this year, the average teacher, whether they're even aware of it or not, are going to have Bitcoin exposure in their, their, their retirement pensions. Same with firefighters, same with cops, etc. Once that happens, you make it where there is nothing that they can do to touch it without bringing down the pain of pissing off the left. Because most of those people, they're left. They're Democrats. And you know what? When the right gets angry and violent, it benefits the government. You ever notice that? Like, If right does anything, like it, all the media comes in, it, they're ultra-maga, extremist, racist, misogynist, non-pronoun-using, crazy people. But when the left gets violent, it's fiery but mostly peaceful. So if you're a congressman, if you're a senator, you do not want the United Auto Workers Union pissed off at you. You do not want the teachers' union pissed off at you. The teachers' union were able to extend lockdowns by writing letters from their union president to key personnel in the government. That's how much power they have. So, when you get into a situation where those people have exposure to Bitcoin, it becomes like trying to fuck with an Indian reservation. It's a third rail. You do not touch it. So, all of the crap about they're going to ban it, they're going to get rid of it, it's dead. Right now, it's already dead. It's twisting around. It's the actual death. Because Bitcoin was never going anywhere. If one person can run one node in one place, Bitcoin doesn't die. And where we're at now, we're so beyond the ability to kill Bitcoin. But now we've made further heavy-handed regulation of this commodity untenable to the government that was the biggest threat to it, which is our own here in the United States. So that, that segment was about 20 minutes, and the video itself with Q&A at the end went about uh, 40, 45-ish. So if you want to check it out on our YouTube channel uh, to see the interaction with the crowd and, and things like that, you can. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Tomorrow will be a Friday flashback episode. Uh, and again, we'll do it all again starting next week. Remember, we do three live streams a week on a normal week. We did the bonus one today, but uh, those are Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Sometimes they're guests. Sometimes it's just me. If you want to catch a live stream, you can always find them at TSP tspclive.com. Uh, we'll announce the next one if it looks like it's in the past. That means I haven't updated it with the newest one yet, and the last one there is still there. Uh, that'll always help you find all of the streaming uh, uh, services that we're on. We're on YouTube. We're on Rumble. We're even on Facebook, even though I'm not. We uh, the stream over there. Uh, we're on Odyssey. Uh, we're on you know just about everything that I can be on uh, from StreamYard. We are on, except for Twitter slash X because no one will help me there. And it's no longer an option for me, even though customer service said there's no restrictions on my account. They've turned off my ability to live stream and then lied about it because that's, you know, they're so free speech, right? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, that wraps it up. Uh, again, thank you for tuning in. I will catch you uh, again tomorrow with a Friday flashback. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house. The American